for me. We're going to stand up for the reading of God's word. Oh, I love it. If you were looking for a hyper-organized church, you know, you may not have found it. We're also in a gym. Hey, we're going to be starting a new book study, Ephesians. The Apostle, ooh, I heard someone say, yeah. The Apostle Paul is the writer of this. The Holy Spirit, to reiterate to everyone, is the author. And from this passage, we're going to go verses 1 through 14 and glean from it what God desires of us. Let's read. Freedom, where the Spirit of the Lord is, to give an amen and vocalize that. Amen is just agreeing with the truths that we're reading and praying through. You'll hear me end up stopping at times and then praying and thanksgiving or confession wherever I feel the Spirit's leading and and whatever the text is bringing about. So with that in mind, freedom for anyone who wants to join along. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, not by anyone else's will, but the will of the Almighty. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Father, I thank you that we are inheriting your perspective of us, that ever since we've said yes to you and no to the world and no to the desires of our heart, but said yes to your salvation and forgiveness, that you've seen us as holy, that you find no fault in us. Help us in this room believe by faith for those of us who are saved, that you truly find no fault in us anymore. Would you help this congregation recognize when the fault finder, the enemy, is speaking to us throughout the week, telling us and condemning us for our past sins, for our present ones, the condition that we're in, the how could use your Christian voice. God, we identify that now, and we rebuke it as a congregation in Jesus' name. Someone give an amen. amen. In love, he, pro- he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God, I don't know what adoption ever looked like. I was born into a family where my parents stayed married. My mother delivered me. I'm biologically my, a son of my parents. So for those of us in this room today who are like me, as we dig out what adoption means spiritually, would you give us a worship of you, knowing that we were alienated before coming to you, far apart from you, didn't want anything to do with you, stiff-armed you, were stiff-necked towards you, rebellious in our condition, and yet still you decided to adopt us. For that, we are grateful. To the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Woo, y'all, I might, I don't even know if we're gonna get to the sermon manuscript. (laughs) There are just so many truths right here. God, we thank you so much for forgiveness. God, help us, help us keep accounts of our past transgressions towards you and that we would see your kindness of your present forgiveness. God, would we be people who are worshipful towards you because you have, been, you have forgiven us much? God, would we be a people who would see our sin as what it was in our new creation and what it is now? God, help us see with clear eyes the great lengths that you went to to forgive us. 
according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. I'm going to jump down. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray, church. God, I thank you for all the saints who you have chosen. God, I thank you so much for the free will that you have given us to choose. God, I thank you that you are fully sovereign. God, we affirm that you have set up everything in your word to be understood, and yet still we are okay with the mystery intentions that come to its endings. God, I thank you so much for the church. Would you give me gifts of understanding as I would herald your word? Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that it's a seal of things to come, and that's our down payment in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now have a seat, please. Have a seat now. Okay, so we're in the book of Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing it from a Roman jail cell after he's visited Ephesus. And the book neatly divides into two sections. The first one is what Christ has done for us. So think of what God has done for us. It's our position in Christ. That's going to be chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then 4, 5, and 6 is going to be the, ha- the second half, and it's basically our practice. If you are born again, if you have exercised faith and trust in Jesus, how then shall you live? That is how the book of Ephesians is written. And this AM, we're actually going to go a little bit heady, but it's necessary, because we need to understand the doctrines of election, predestination, all in the context of salvation. You with me? We got like two people who understand. It's all good. It's all good. But as we walk through this, I'm going to use, um, regardless of your background, first off, we're actually touching on these topics because the Apostle Paul has brought it up in the text, as you guys understood as we were reading through it. And I'm going to be using simple language to get us all on board. And then as I talk through election and and predestination, I'm going to be taking it to its logical ending so that we don't end up with a four-hour Bible study. Is that okay? Do I have permission to keep this around like the 40-minute to 80-minute mark? Yeah. <laughs> election is the doctrine that God chooses people. Election, election is the doctrine that God chooses people. Predestination is the doctrine that God has predetermined things to happen before they happen. Predestination is the doctrine that God has predetermined that things would happen before they actually happen. In other words, election is God's choosing of the who and predestination is God's choosing of the what. Election who, predestination what. And here's the whole thing of why we need to talk about this. When they appear together with God choosing people and then predestination is also there in the same sentence structure, which by the way, that whole uh, from verses three to 14 in Greek is one long run-on sentence with a bunch of commas. You English teachers, you be driven crazy and up a wall. But as we were working through it, it's, it's all of Paul's one thought, one thought. And in it, we end up finding the words election and, and predestination, God choosing, and then God chose before the foundations of the world. And so we need to end up talking about these things. 
because it's a popular interpretation that God has chose individuals before the foundations of the world to be Christians, to be saved. And so is that true? Is that not true? Why? What are other perspectives? I'm glad you asked. There are four different perspectives and views historically on election. And I'm going to briefly go through that. Again, forgive me, this is not going to be exhaustive. I'm not going to nuance a whole bunch. But we need to understand um, election and how. The biggest issue is when people think of election, God choosing before the foundation of the world for some to be Christians. There are two views that we need to unpack a little bit because the question should end up being, well, what is it based off of? The first one is going to be based off of God looking down the corridors of time and seeing that Roy in 2007 in Lincoln would choose salvation, would choose Christ. Therefore, in this, it's because of that, it's conditioned on my faith that God then ends up selecting me. Okay, now the other one is, is that God does choose an individual before the foundations of the world, but he doesn't look at your faith. He ends up saying, I'm just going to do it. And its logical ending is he makes the choice because you don't have a choice. You would not choose him because of your sin condition. Therefore, God is going to elect and choose you, not based off of anything, but just unconditionally. Some may say arbitrary, but God has his mysterious reasons. With that being said, let's actually get into the views. Okay, the first one here. Individual election is based off of foreknowledge. This means that God chose us before the foundation of the world based off of him, again, foreknowing that we would choose him. This becomes popularized by Jacob Arminius in the 1600s after the Reformation from the Catholic Church. And they get this from passages like Romans 8.29 and also 1 Peter 1 if you want to look up there. Okay, you end up seeing foreknowledge is thrown in here. And then predestination, right? Remember predestination by our definition was God determining something to happen before it happens, okay? And so here's how they see foreknew. Verse 29, for those whom he, meaning God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. So they would end up looking at this and saying, God, in this verse, chose before the foundations of the world to save people. So the image of his son, they would say that's saving people. And the big thing is foreknew. Foreknew, they're saying, they're saying that God foreknew that a person would exercise their free will. He knew that God would exercise your free will, my free will, and then he would choose from eternity gone by based off of that. So in today's passage, which you'll end up seeing up here in Ephesians, uh, this camp would read that God chooses Christians, but they, it's understood that they choose Christians, God chooses Christians based off of us choosing God. And he predetermined that, he predestined that before the foundations of the world because he looked into the future and saw that we would exercise our will. Give me a head nod if you're understanding where we are right now. Okay, sounds good. So this would be like a Western culture marriage where both people have free will. So that'd be like everyone here, to be honest. Let's just, I mean. So that would not be an arranged marriage where two people, they get married and they choose one another. And who's choosing who in the marriage or before you get married? Both of you are choosing one another. That's how this camp would end up nuancing and saying, yeah, we chose him, but at that moment, as he looked through time, he also chose us simultaneously. So that's an analogy for this. Now, the next view we would see would be an arranged marriage 
more of an Eastern culture marriage, which is God is going to have a spouse, his elect. He's going to save people, and he's, it's not because of your will. He's going to enforce his will upon you and choose you because of the understanding of, from this camp that you cannot choose God. So it's more of an arranged marriage. We'll look at it here. Second election, individual based again, and it's based off of God predetermining, predetermining, meaning before any Christian in here chose to follow Jesus, God chose you, and it wasn't because you had anything to do with it. You didn't have a will. I'm taking it to his logical ending. He just chose that for you. So he chooses some, and he chooses not others. This came from John Calvin, popularized from him from the Reformation. He was a massive influence in the Reformation theologians. So in today's passage, they would read of God's choosing, which you'll see up here, for salvation. And it's all based off of God predetermining for you that you would become a Christian. And that would also mean, if you take it to its reasonable ending, that whoever's not a Christian in here and would die unrepentant, that God would not have chose or predetermined that person. So if we go back, um, Ruben, if you wouldn't mind throwing it back to uh, Romans 8.29 real quick for me, the slide back. So they would look at Romans 8.29 and say, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to basically be a Christian is how they'd interpret this. And the foreknew that they would understand in this camp will be that God effectually knows someone intimately before he predetermines that person. So it's not necessarily that he looked into time and saw that someone would end up choosing him. It's God's will being imparted onto the person. Okay, so the difference in the first two camps is one has to do with humans' free will and God. The other one has to do with exclusively God's will towards you. Give me a head nod if you're ready to move on. Okay? All right, number three, corporate election. This is where the game switches up a little bit. This is where the game switches up a little bit. This means that God elected Christ. He elected Christ in all these verses that you see, and including today. And whoever believes in him will inherit the predestined blessings, the what? Of post-conversion, your inheritance. So that ends up meaning that election was not individually based, based off of salvation, but it's on who would save you, meaning God the Father chose Christ as the firstborn among his children. And so, in other words, God chooses the plan, he doesn't choose the man. God chooses the plan, he doesn't choose the man. Lastly, what this ends up meaning that if Christ is the chosen one, then anyone, whosoever believes on him, ends up becoming a part of the chosen people. And you end up seeing in 1 Peter, other portions of scripture, how the writers of the New Testament address people as people groups as well. Are you tracking with me? Give me a head nod. Okay, sounds good. And so in today's passage, it would read that God's not selecting people unto salvation, which when you read it plainly seems like it. But when you pick it apart and look at the audience, they would argue that he's picking the post-Christian conversion blessings. Basically, the Christian's inheritance. And remember, you have to have a mindset that all of this was done before the creation of the world, meaning there was a time where God's revealing to us, I had some decisions to make. And these are the decisions behind the scenes that he's allowing us through the scriptures to end up seeing. He's setting up his plan, taking us back before time. 
All right, here is the fourth and last one. Individual. Now we're going back to individual. Individual election to service. That God chooses people to serve a purpose in his redemptive plan. He does choose individuals, but it's unto service. They interpret Jesus' choosing in this camp as not a choosing in the gospels unto salvation, but a choosing unto service. Look, John 15 verse 16 reads, you did not choose me, but Jesus chose you. He's speaking to the apostles here and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide. So Jesus has many disciples. We end up seeing in Luke 10 that he sends out 72 of them. Many followers, students of him. He is rabbi to them. But uniquely, he appoints 12 men who are apostles to serve as messengers to go out and carry the gospel in the early church. He selects them to actually be in this verse, as they would interpret it, unto service, to be apostles among disciples, among the disciples. This view is tenable with God's choosing in the old covenant with Israel. You see, this is how a lot of biblical scholars connect the two and say God hasn't changed necessarily in his choosing, but they're one and the same. Israel was not chosen unto salvation. They were chosen unto service. So the reason how we end up knowing that is because when God made a covenant with Israel to be his people, he said, go and be a blessing to all nations. They had, don't, let's not get it twisted, just like anyone here who grows up in a Christian family, a first row seat to the true God of the universe, the true creator, Yahweh. And that was among all pagan nations. So that was the grace on their life. But, but we know it's not unto salvation because later, all of the exile documents and chronicles the reason why God is punishing Israel, and it's because they're worshiping pagan gods. They're worshiping gods of Baal, so on and so forth. And the only way to end up experiencing heaven back then was to continue by faith to sacrifice, continue by faith to offer up worship unto one God, and that would be Yahweh and Yahweh alone. If you would imagine right now, if, if you believe that anyone who is from the old covenant automatically or Jewish ends up going up into heaven, then right now we would end up having Baal worshipers in heaven for those who did not repent during the exile. Are you tracking the reasoning there? So it wasn't unto salvation, it was unto service. And the reality is, is that Israel doesn't mean they ended up having salvation but they were used by God to end up bringing in the son of God for our salvation. Okay, so with all that being said, you're probably wondering where does CLB land on all these views? Well, we lean heavily towards corporate election. So that would have to do with God the Father's choosing of Jesus and whomsoever come to him then are known as the chosen people of God. And we lean because they come in tandem with what I just described as election unto service that God does choose people, and you can see it throughout scripture, even in the old covenant, or even as we were reading in um, uh, verse one with the introduction of, 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 uh, of Paul saying, chosen by the will of God, people are chosen for certain things. You have specific giftings, spiritual giftings that bless the church, whether we end up finding them out or not, whether we end up sitting on them or exercising them, God has chosen people to serve in a specific capacity, whether it was the old covenant or the new covenant. 
We've got one amen. There are a few things, though, that inform the decision. Before we get into the text, before we get into the text, we affirm that God is a morally free agent. He could do whatever he wants. Anything that he wants. In the Gospels, when Jesus is being tempted by people to say, hey, why don't you end up saving yourself while he was being beaten and flogged and taken to the cross? He said, I could call down angels. They would save me, but I'm not going to. He could do whatever he wants. But in his design, the way that we end up seeing the scriptures from front to back is that he's designed humanity with free will. And that is free will and an ability to exercise faith in Christ. So what I'm saying is sin has not taken away humanity's ability to believe. Now that is not a Calvin view and we're not going through Bible study. If you want to have a conversation about that and you're gonna be convinced, honestly, it's gonna come through a lot of Bible study and a lot of word work. It's not gonna come just on this Sunday or else we would not have, I mean, I don't even know if like 10 people would have came to be honest, but there's another space for that. Hit me up. Hit KJ, hit Glenn up. We would love to have that conversation. Second thing, we see that faith is not a work. So if someone exercises faith, then you can't take credit for your salvation. And not only that, but God did all the work so that you could exercise faith. That's good. Well, praise God, because, you know, it is all to God's glory. So the way that you understand this is, or how we came to this understanding is, Paul contrasts in the book of Romans works and faith works does not merit salvation faith does it's a condition that's met just like repentance conditions that are met that meant that you are actually united with christ okay free will is not gotta say it it's not a superpower god we still believe in this church that god's plans will prevail that he will work out he's that powerful to work out morally free agents and what they choose to do, whether it's him or not, unto the new heavens and the new earth and his glory. Okay, a couple more things to affirm. John, don't fall asleep back there. We affirm that God is fully sovereign. So, mm -hmm. But it's not from a Calvinist perspective. It's that God is in control and all powerful, but he's not controlling. God is in control, but according to what he wants to do, he set it up by his will to be not all controlling. Just because he has control doesn't mean that he has to be controlling. Some of you know that your boss can do whatever he wants, but at the end of the day, he can also choose not to micromanage you. And that's the way that we've seen God the Father choose to design people and their ability to choose Christ or not. Dale? Wake up, son. <laughs> I'm fooling. Sorry, y'all. Sorry, y'all. This is fun for me. Uh, we affirm. Lastly, 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 before we get into the text. If you're visiting, I promise you we read through the Bible and we teach through it. But we have to understand these things as a church. We affirm that every view brings different mysterious endings. In the study of this passage and all the perspectives, as I went through each one and got myself to, I've been to each each intellectual, honest reasoning and through the study of original language and sentence structures and hermeneutics and trying to get everything in its proper place biblically to interpret it within its context, 
take it to then interpret it amongst how the Bible interprets the Bible so that I'm totally not off on these things. Everything comes to faith at the end of it. And, and some mystery that each one of us, when you go through these things, have to be willing to cope with at the end of the day. You know, each, each one of us, there is so much grace. This is a secondary issue. I have brothers and sisters in Christ who see it differently than the way I've described in terms of God's election for salvation. And I'm closer than a lot of people who would agree with me. <laughs> so this shouldn't break fellowship in this congregation. This is all just an encouragement to let you know of where we stand as we read our Bibles with these verses all in tandem with one another. Here's a quote from the great Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon from the 1800s. Forgive him, he was English. Go America. And he has, it has to do with reconciling God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He was asked this, and this was his remark. I never have to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. I didn't need to reconcile what God has joined together. Amen. You have freedom wherever you land as the Spirit puts on your heart, your convictions. Okay, with that being said, we'll actually get into the text here in Ephesians and we'll reread passages and walk through them. Before we get into there, though, I do want to go through, um, just as a reminder, all of these things you're going to be reading because we're going through um, a wordy passage in the ESV, just to let you know, these are all post-conversion blessings that, caught, that God predestined for anyone who would believe. So just set your mind on that as I teach through it, and I'll, I'll bring it up again. And then keep in mind that God had the choice before he created the world to set up everything that had to do with salvation, whether he would offer it, how it would look, sending his son, but specifically in this, he had a choice to say, you will not get any of your spiritual blessings until you get into heaven, after your last dying breath. And by God's grace and his kindness, he didn't do that. All of these post-conversion blessings can be experienced right as you know Christ. Number three is all of this is in view of despite our sin and despite our stiff-neckedness and rebellion and stiff-arming God, out of God's kindness, this is how much God loved each and every one of you, church, that he predestined you for these blessings. He loves you so much before the foundations of the world, he saved you and set, up, set you apart unto these blessings, knowing exactly what, we, what decisions that we would make. Okay, let's jump into it. Okay, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So again, he is writing to Christians that are in Ephesus. You end up seeing um, in Christ Jesus throughout this passage. So in Christ is alluded to right there. And you backtrack it and you say, okay, that is how the saints in Ephesus are being described. So just think simply Christian. That's who he's writing to. That's what's being, being said by in Christ. And then let's move on to verse 3 and 4 because it will help us interpret. Blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. Meaning he has blessed us Christians with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Right now it's talking about blessings. You tracking? And it's talking about us Christians who are being blessed. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, meaning Christians, even as he chose us Christians 
before the foundation of the world. Now look, what has he chosen for us before the foundation of the world? Because it hasn't concluded yet. What is he saying? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay, that doesn't necessarily mean salvation. Two reasons why. One, after this, we end up seeing, again, remember in the Greek, it's a run-on sentence. The next one's going to be another post-conversion blessing. We end up seeing that he, see, he adopts us into the family of God. We end up seeing that, well, I won't spoil it. But in context, that is the first among post-Christian blessings. It, he, he could have written in there, uh, he had chosen us, and here are the blessings, that you were saved. Before the foundations of the world are predestined, and then he ends up putting in salvation. And then the rest of his thought would end up being a little bit different, but he doesn't. Are you tracking with me of how we get to where we're getting in terms of all this being post-Christian blessing? Okay. We got one brave soul. Any, any other brave soul say, no, talk to me later. Talk to me later. Okay, so if it's not salvation, it's post-salvation blessings. And it's namely in this verse, in this verse, holiness and blameless. Holiness and blameless in God's sight. He, the God of the universe and the creator of your souls, saw to it that in advance that he would end up seeing you and I as blameless and without fault after exercising faith in Christ. This means that when he sees you and he does see us with eyes of, of judgment, he is, also sees us with eyes of loving kindness, but when he looks to us to judge us, he sees his son's obedience not your disobedience. He sees Christ's wholeness, not your gaps. The God of the universe, imagine this, knew your sin, my sin, before we came to repentance and faith in Christ and chose to see us, knowing our sin, as blameless and faultless before him. That regardless of all the crap that we have put God through, put other people through who have, been, who have been made in his image, that he would continue to see us once by faith, once after faith, as blameless and faultless. I don't, I, just any married person at this moment would be like, I'm still holding grudges about something that happened two minutes ago with my spouse. That's how otherly God is. Despite our sins. So let's continue to see what else God predestined for Christians before the foundations of the world. There are a few more post-Christian blessings. Verse 5 and 6. In love he predestined. The what? He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus. Church, we've been adopted into a spiritual family. You have spiritual siblings. You have a big brother, Jesus who's your spiritual siblings. He's the one who ended up making a way for us to have spiritual family as a local church. You have spiritual grandpas and grandmas who offer wisdom and experience after walking through life, denying themselves, picking up their cross and following Jesus. But ultimately what we have best of all is a good and loving father. That's church, what we have inherited as a post-conversion blessing. That before the foundations of the world, saint, or as the ESV says, beloved, he loves you so much that he's offered himself 
his goodness as a loving father, I have a father who I think is extraordinary. I genuinely do. I think that he's the cat's meow. He set me up to play football. He saw talents in me, always affirmed me with his words, encouraged me to do stuff that would build me up, watched family with me when I was younger, came to all my sport, everything that you would want in terms of affirmations of words, presence with me. Although, you know, he, he could be doing something else as long as he was with me. My dad was extraordinary, and he falls extremely short compared to the father. Extremely short. My, there, there's anger and blemishes in, in every father, and there, there's slip-ups in every father's life, regardless of how amazing you are. And God is so utterly different. So much better. And for some of us, it means something that much more. You didn't have a father. You didn't have any, for, so for me to say that he's a good father because of his predestining of these post-spiritual, post-conversion blessings may end up being up here, but may end up being hard to receive as it travels 12 inches down to the heart. But just want to let you know that despite you not having a father, you have a perfect one in God the Father who loves you so much that he pre-blessed you with all the blessings that you're experiencing. And just in this local family, thank God for other Christians. Um, not that we're all humble, but at least we have opportunities to be weak in huddles, that we can share of our struggles as a new parent, as a grandmother looking back at how your daughter's raising their kids and you're like, I could do so much better. I mean, there are so many things. Being in a huddle, confessing sin with one another, relating to one another, and being okay with being imperfect and yet still worshiping Christ and seeking towards being holy, that's an amazing gift from God. Uh, second, city groups. Praise God that there are people who get together of both genders and multi-generational to sit around a couch or a living room. Thank you, city group leaders who opened up your living room for, so that people would end up coming in and fellowshipping. Thank you for praying for one another. We believe in the biblical understanding of how prayer ends up doing something and stirring in God's heart to, to action. And we've seen a lot of miracles and amazing testimonies of God's goodness and his action on our lives because in city groups, people knew us and they prayed for us. We've seen people get pregnant because people knew it, knew that we were struggling, knew that we wanted uh, to get pregnant and ended up praying for it. And we still believe by faith that God still hears those prayers though they not be answered. Okay, I, not everyone is an extrovert, but this is just spiritual family talk. Praise God for outside of, of, of the uh, local church. Let's just be honest. I mean, there's something special about being in Indonesia, running into someone in an airport. They hardly speak lingu uh, English. Language. They hardly speak English, but you connect over Jesus, and it's like, boom, instant connection. I have no clue who you are. I don't know how to pronounce your name. Or you end up going to California and it's the same thing, or Texas, or Florida, wherever it is. You just have instant connections. That I'm grateful for, for the spiritual family. And think again. Think again. God could have made all the rules. He makes, sorry, he makes all the rules beforehand. And he can change them however he wants. And yet still, he chose this for you and I, despite knowing how we would neglect him and turn away from him. Church, if you aren't feeling like spiritual family, I don't know your, your specific predicament, but want to encourage you to end up asking the Holy Spirit and praying and asking him, what are the next steps you have for me to feel like spiritual family? Because as a pastor teacher, one of the three on this um, staff at CLB, we want to see that blessing 
be given to you. Whether it's here or elsewhere, I want to exhort you and encourage you. If you don't feel like spiritual family and it's just you're coming on Sundays, maybe it's actually going to a city group. Maybe it's going to an all women's or men's huddle. Anything that would get us feeling like spiritual family and less of a consumer is a big win in your development and love for Christ. Okay, there are two other blessings. How's the condition of the room? You in for it? Okay. Verses seven through eight. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So from his richly character, again, before the foundations of the world, he ends up giving us the blessing of redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and freedom from the power of sin. Praise the Lord. One spirit-filled Christian, the Bible ends up calling anyone who has not yet let Jesus run your life as a slave, a spiritual slave, specifically to the enemy, that's the devil, that's Satan, that's who I once was a slave to and where all my desires once were. It felt like whenever, before I came to Jesus, whatever I would do felt like, yes, I had a choice, but boy, it was difficult because I was being told what to do. Realized looking back, I was very acquainted with the enemy, my slave owner. So the imagery is that when someone ends up getting born again, that Jesus becomes your abolitionist, comes up to you, says to Satan, I'm buying this one. And he ends up saying, I'm freeing this one from you. And he's going to experience freedom in me as a servant of mine. He then forgives us of the debt. He sets us free from our former slave owner. And then he forgives us of our debt. Hey, hey, I'm looking at some of you senior saints. And you know, you know over the years, all the stuff that you've been involved in that's been missing the mark of God's perfect moral desires desires for you. You can look back, amen. <laughs> One C, I see you, John. Thanks for being brave there. That should be good news to our souls. That when God is getting our rap sheet as he's setting us free, he's ripping it up and throwing it into the lake. And the beautiful thing is that he's, as Glenn alluded to, He's just setting us free in terms of the power that sin had over us. That we have not just the power to choose things that are towards godliness, but we have the desire to do it. That we're just new creations ever since we set our minds on Christ, on, on things above, and turn to him for salvation. Next verse, 9 through 11, post-Christian blessings. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has chosen the post-Christian blessing for anyone who would believe in him that we would know the end. I don't know about y'all, but I get on my bride's nerves all the time watching a movie. If I haven't seen the movie and she's seen the movie, I have a tendency to say, okay, what's going to happen next? Okay, what's going to happen next? Okay, what's going to happen? And she ends up getting very irritated like anyone would. 
So for God to be so loving and so kind that he chose for us to end up appeasing our, let's just be honest, human curiosity of what's going to happen next in the world, he let us know. He let us know that what's happening next, and sure there are a lot of nuances and ways again to have different views on this. Jesus is coming back and he's going to vindicate everything. He's going to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. There'll be no more gnashing, weeping, sorrow for sin, or sin at all. Praise God for that. We have the end of the movie already revealed to us. So, how much does God love and care for each individual here who has put their faith in Jesus already? He cares so much that he did everything before the foundations of the world. That's how much he loves and cares for this church. Despite the sins of our past, present, and future moving forward. To his glorious name, may he be blessed with a greater view of worship. He could have predetermined each individual here to be robots, and yet he didn't. Bill, I know you would have loved that, but that's just not where we end up seeing the scriptures. He ends up giving us every inheritance. It's, it's condiments to a dish. It would have been amazing just to experience salvation after our last dying breath, but each one of us has experienced the Holy Spirit whom we've inherited. We know the end from the beginning because he's revealed it to us. We've been set free. We've been empowered. We've been forgiven. We're blameless and without fault. Jesus, thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness. Thank you for your word. God, we give you glory. Soften the hearts of those who disagree in the room. So much room for humility on both sides. We admit that we're humans trying to understand a divine truth. And yet in it all, would you get credit? In Jesus' name.